Good morning, everybody. My name is David Kakish. I think you know that. I'm one of the elders of Cornerstone Church, and apparently it's winter break. And being that more than half our church is out, I decided to save my maybe heaviest sermon <laughs> for this day to reward you all. So congratulations. Uh, <laughs> to make things a little lighter, maybe, I thought I'd start with a joke, if you guys are okay with it. So here's my joke. Uh, there's an elderly couple at church, and while the pastor is preaching, the wife leans over to her husband and whispers in his ear, I think I just let out one of those silent farts. What should I do? And the husband says in a full voice, change the battery on your hearing aid. <laughs> uh, the point of that hilarious joke, uh, at least it's hilarious to me, is that we often don't realize the severity and obvious nature of our sin. Deeds done in silence, deeds done in darkness convince us that no one saw, no one heard. But even if no one saw and no one heard, uh, God always does, right? Psalm 90, verse 8, Moses says, uh, You have set our sins before you. Our secret sins are exposed in the light of your presence. So, like Mark said, after a few weeks away, uh, we're back in 1 Samuel. I was going to recap just really super quickly. Chapter 1, we saw a grieving barren woman, Hannah. And when we dug into chapter 1, what we learned from Hannah is how to grieve and hope, and she did. And as she did, God saw her, God heard her, God remembered her, and he gave her a baby boy, a son named Samuel. And she's super thankful. And so in chapter 2, we saw that even though she was probably tempted to keep Samuel as her own, who wouldn't be? Uh, she made good on her word, brought him to the house of the Lord so he could serve the Lord there forever, all the days of his life. And when we dug into that, <clears throat> particularly verses 1 through 10, as we heard in our background scripture, Hannah taught us how to worship. We said that... Um, where we left off, Hannah was praising God for his kindness. She was warning those who contend against God, give it up. You will never win. God always gets his way. And then she was interceding on behalf of all of God's people who were down and out. And what I want us to realize is that when we first are introduced to Hannah in chapter 1, she's a grieving and barren woman. But when we see her for the last time in chapter 2, um, she's joyful. She's praising God. And this barren woman has had six kids. Truly, the road of obedience is where our deepest joy is found. And that's why we said the Hannah's song, her prayer, captures the major theme of the book of 1 Samuel, the major theme of reversal. Her situation is completely opposite to how we first met her in one chapter. Uh, and like she's saying, the Lord opposes the proud. He shows kindness to the humble. It's God who makes rich. It's God who makes poor. It's God who exalts, and it's God who brings low. So this morning, we're going to uh, briskly walk through a kind of heavy passage, 1 Samuel 2, verses 11 through 29. And when we do, we'll see the theme of reversal proved true in the opposite direction, in the opposite direction. Uh, the road of obedience is where our deepest joy is found, but the road of disobedience only leads to despair and death. Uh, and that's the honest truth. In verse 11, Elkanah and Hannah go home. Samuel stays at the temple to serve the Lord. And, and when they do, when they go that way, the camera shifts and focuses on Eli's household. Uh, and that's what happens, and we're meant to see a contrast between the two families and the fate of both families. You'll see they're interwoven between each other. They keep going back and forth. And in our passage, God blesses Elkanah and Hannah's household for their faithfulness, for their obedience. But he curses Eli's house for their unfaithfulness. Uh, and to be candid, I'm not necessarily excited to preach this passage. Y'all, like, in my heart, I'm a grace guy. I, I'm a grace guy. I just, I love to highlight God's mercy, his kindness, his forgiveness, and uh, the joy that he invites us to walk in, in faith. That's what my heart sings about. At the same time, while I'm not necessarily to preach, excited to preach about God's judgment, 
it's passages like these that remind me and make me thankful that we are part of a church that is committed to teach the full counsel of God's word. Not just the passages that make us feel good and the passages we like, but all of it. We're going to go through all of it because the word of God, all of it, is a gift. It is a gift, uh, even when it's hard. So we would do well to hear, understand, and respond to what we hear today, even when it's hard. And our outline for today looks like this. Two points. Oh, we're in 1 Samuel. Two points. Here are point one. Sin stinks, but it smells especially bad in the church. That's verses 20, uh, 12 through 21. And the second point, you shall have no other gods before me. Verses 22 through 29. We've got a lot of ground to cover. Uh, we're going to jump right in. Point one, I like the title of this one. Sin stinks, but it smells especially bad in the church. And I'll put a slide of verses 12 through 17. It's small on the screen. If you've got your Bible or your phone, that might be easier. What's happening in these verses? We'll start with verse 12. In verse 12, we find out that Eli's sons are exactly what he accused Hannah of being when he saw her weeping in the temple that day, pouring out her heart to God. His sons are worthless. The text tells us that they did not know the Lord. And while this is the time of judges, I'm sure there are a lot of people who do not know the Lord. The reason this one is especially bad is because if you flip back to chapter 1, you'll read that his sons, Eli, Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, um, they're priests. The priests do not know the Lord. That's pretty bad. And the fact that the priests are described as wicked men who don't know the Lord, who have no concern or respect for God, oof, an indictment. And in English it says, now the sons of Eli were worthless men, and it's kind of a nice way to put it, because uh, if you read it in Hebrew, it literally just says this, the sons of Eli, the sons of Belial. The sons of Eli, the sons of Belial. It's not just that we're being told that they are bad men, that they are worthless men. We're being told whose sons they actually are. The author is indicating that Eli's sons are actually the sons of Belial. And I know you remember everything I said, but back in chapter 1, I told you Belial is the demonic god of lawlessness. And uh, his followers were an adulterous, drunken cult who chased every sinful fancy in their heart and uh, abandoned God's law. And by putting the sons of Eli, the sons of Belial in apposition, by putting them side by side, um, the author is equating Eli with the demonic god, Belial. And uh, that indictment may not make sense to us right now. I mean, from what we've seen, he'd be like, he seems like a pretty good dude. I don't think it seems kind of harsh. But I think as we move through this passage, maybe uh, it'll become more evident why he's being called that. So that's verse 12. In verses 13 through 16, we get a, a brief snapshot of what his worthless sons are doing. And I don't want us to get hung up in the details of the boiled meat and the pot and the three-pronged fork. And so I'm just going to give you a quick summary. If you have any questions about this passage, please reach out to me. Send me an email. As always, marv.spear at gmail. I'm really quick at responding. Um, nothing. Okay. That's all right. <laughs> okay. So... Elkanah and Hannah, when they went to the temple to make their sacrifice, they brought three times what was required of them because their hearts are just pouring out with joy and thanksgiving. Elkanah and Hannah brought three times the sacrifice in chapter 1. Here in chapter 2, Hophni and Phinehas says they treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. And a few ways they did it, I boiled it down to some points. First, they weaponized God's gracious provision for selfish gain. 
they weaponize God's gracious provision for selfish gain. What I'm saying is that God loves his people, and he loves his ministers, and in grace, he wants to provide for them to make sure they're taken care of. So God gives instructions that the priest can take an allotment, a portion of his sacrifice, so they can live off of it, so they can eat well and provide for themselves and their families. In grace, God invited his ministers to take part in what belongs to him. Gracious. It's wonderful. But these two idiots... (laughs) They weren't content with that. They wanted what they wanted, when they wanted it, and they didn't really care what God had said. They took their share of the offering, like you heard in the text, before the fat was burned. And here's the truth of that. The priests weren't even supposed to touch the fat. The fat was supposed to be removed from the meat and burned separately. And it would be a sweet offering to the Lord. And it would be a sweet aroma. The fat was off limits. They wanted it. And not only did they take the fat... They took their portion before the fat was borned. Uh, borned, that's a word. Burned, that's also a word. Uh, they wanted their portion before the Lord got his. They put themselves before God in the process of the sacrifice and the offering. So they weaponized God's gracious provision for his priests, a way to provide for them in grace. By sharing what is his, they weaponized it for selfish gain. One. Two, they tried to disguise their sinfulness as God's desire. That's what God wants. Right? They knew the commandments about how to process this and what they were allowed to do. And they told the people to give it to them anyways because, God, we don't like our meat boiled. We don't like our meat boiled. God doesn't like his meat boiled. He likes it roasted. They wanted a barbecue instead of a stew. And therefore, God wants a barbecue too. They told the people that's what God wants because that's what they want. So they disguised their sinfulness as God's desire. And third, in verse 16... When the people who knew the word protested, when the people who knew what God's instructions were and wanted to respond in the way that God called them to, when they said, no, let us burn the fat first, then take whatever you want. Uh, When they were corrected by the people of God with the word of God, what did they do? They weaponized their God-given authority to abuse the people. Uh, The ones who were supposed to be the teachers had to be taught by the people. And when they were corrected by the people, what did the priests do? What did the priests say? the priests who are supposed to be the servants of God's people, they tell them, you must give it to us now, and if not, we will take it by force. They physically assaulted and abused God's people if they didn't comply with sin. That was not in accordance with God's word. And how do you think that affected the people? What were the people's response to all this? Well, um, as a result, it caused the people to stumble in their faith. It's not as apparent in English, and I'm not flexing Hebrew, promise you. But the Hebrew text kind of suggests that Hophni and Phineas' sinful actions, it left a bad taste in the people's mouths when they thought about the offering and the temple, and as a result, even God himself. Can you imagine why? Why would God's ministers, his representatives on earth, acting evilly, cause people to have doubts and a bad taste in their mouth about God himself? And in verse 17, we're told that Hophni and Phinehas treated God's offering with contempt. They treated it as if it was nothing, as if it had no value, and that the sins of these worthless men, these men who did not know the Lord, was very great in God's sight. It did not go unnoticed, and it would not go unpunished. You're going to have to bear with me for a second, right? Because uh, I'm going to give you a kind of weird illustration, and you might be like, what is he talking about? But I promise there's a point in this if you bear with me. Uh, So is that cool with you guys? Yes. Everyone said yes. It was awesome. So here it is. Uh, I have mixed feelings about the fall. 
the, the season, the fall. I, I just kind of do. Uh, and come October, it's cold, it's windy, it's dreary, it's getting darker sooner, and uh, the ground is covered with the shadow of death. You look around, come October, going into November, and all you see is dead flowers, dead plants, dead leaves, dying grass, and it's kind of depressing to me. Um, but that's one of the reasons I love winter so much. I love snow. It, it's beautiful. And when it snows, all of that death is covered up. Um, everything looks bright and fresh and pristine and gorgeous. And after it snows, sometimes I just stare out my the window in my office and just kind of marvel go, wow, that is something. It's beautiful. But then I go outside, okay? <laughs> and when I go outside to just take it in in all its glory, all that gorgeous, pristine, beautiful snow, that feeling of wonder is so quickly lost when I notice that this beautiful, gorgeous landscape of white, pure snow is covered and littered with these brown, thick, juicy landmines of dog poop. It taints it, right? Y'all know what I'm talking about. You do the ski hill loop. It's everywhere. And I mean, sure, the snow is still there. And you can try to look past it and behold the beauty of the snow. But you probably won't because you can't stop seeing the poop everywhere you go. And the poop distracts everyone because the poop affects everyone. Uh, you can see it. You can smell it. You're so busy trying not to step in it that you forget all about the beautiful snow all around it. And then you start to wonder, why don't these owners pick up this poop? Can I get an amen on that? Here it is. And here's the thing. I, I got a lot of snow illustrations coming in the next month. I've been thinking about snow a lot. Here's the thing. Of course, dogs poop in the fall too. So why is it different in the winter? Because it's most noticeable and therefore most disgusting against the backdrop of the white, pristine snow. Am I wrong? You see it. It's, it's there. It's everywhere. And in the same way, sin and darkness and brokenness are all around us in this world. And like fall, the world is covered with the evidence of death. But in the church, among the people to whom God says, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. In the church, it's winter, baby. It's winter. In the church, all that death is covered in fresh, pristine, and the gorgeous snow of God's grace. He covers all our death and sin with his white snow and grace. And uh, it's just that the backdrop of God's grace is what makes sin stick out most noticeably and most disgustingly in the church. That's how it works, and the scriptures are clear, and we've said this. The redeemed, those who believe in Jesus, um, they still sin. Uh, we do, and God's people will inevitably sin in the church. It's not super surprising, but our sin, our dog poop, uh, was never meant to become a permanent fixture of our body, of the body at large. Um, the expectation is always that it will be picked up or dealt with, lest it detract from the beauty of God's grace. And that's point one. Sin stinks, but it stinks especially bad in the church. Uh, and all sin is bad, but sin among God's people is a very great, it's very great in his sight, is what the text says. Sin amongst his people is very great in his sight. 
And if the church doesn't deal with it, God will do it himself. Which leads us to point two. You shall have no other gods before me. This is verses 22 through 34. Uh, I'm going to put 22 through 25 on a slide up here. We'll take it in chunks. What's happening here? Well, Hophni and Phinehas, Eli's sons, thought that they, uh, their farts were silent. But they weren't. And everyone heard them, even their dad. And when verse 22 says, now Eli was very old, I think we're meant to understand that all these shenanigans, all this evil had been going on for a long, long time. And only now, with word of his son spreading like wildfire, uh, only now did Eli finally say something to them. Only now did he finally rebuke them. Not only were his sons abusing the offering, abusing uh, God's word to control and manipulate others and physically abusing people. Eli hears, we see in this passage, uh, that they were sleeping with the women who were serving at the entrance of the temple. They were using their position and authority as God's ministers to take advantage of women who came to the temple to serve God. This women's faith, their love for God, brought them to the temple so they could show their love for God in service to him and his people and be a part of the grace of God that's happening in their assembly. And what did they find instead? Two wolves who are priests who were happy to feast on God's lambs. Uh, let that sink in for a second, the depths of that evil. And in verses 23 through 25, Eli, who is the elder priest and their father, finally confronts his sons about all the evil that they're up to. And he's like, why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? And then he lets them know that the word is out. Sin stinks, especially bad in the church, and everybody smelled it. Eli says, I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. The reports of his son's evil, it's going abroad. Everybody knows about it. And I can't say this for sure. We can ask God when we get to heaven. But in my reading of this text, the only thing that prompted Eli to finally say something to his sons uh, was the fact that their evil was now known by all. I think he was content to let it go on He's an old man now, and he's finally saying something. I think he was content to let it go on uh, if it stayed quiet and covered. But now that it's public and everybody knows about it, he's got to do something. I mean, it's making him look bad. So in verse 25, Eli gives his son this warning. And I'm going to break it down real quick. Um, he's pitching his sons as if it's a legal dispute. Okay, It says God in the text, and the, the term for God there can be rendered God's appointed judge. Right? So what he's saying is a son in a legal dispute. If you sin against somebody, you get to go to court. And uh, there's a judge there. And the judge will hear both sides. He'll hear the facts. He'll weigh out what he thinks is happening. He'll compare those facts to what the law says. And then he'll make a decision. He'll either charge you or exonerate you to the best of his ability from what he can understand of all this. And that works. And you have a lawyer and judges are human and you could try to give a good testimony. They can kind of be manipulated and all the rest. But... If you sin against God, who can help you then? Eli wants his sons to know that God knows the facts of what happened better than you ever could. Uh, your testimony, your position, your narrative, your tears, whatever you bring, it's not going to help you. You can't plead ignorance with God. You can't make excuses. He can see your heart. Nothing will be hidden from him. God weighs out all knowledge. His laws are stricter than human laws. He cannot be manipulated. He cannot be deceived. He is not impartial. He will not give us any favors. Um, so to be charged in God's court, sons, you really don't want that. So just stop it, okay? And that's good advice on Eli's part. Ironically, uh, 
as we'll see in a few verses, that's the exact position that Eli will find himself in being encountered with the word of God with no one to intercede for him. But for now, how did Eli's sons respond to their dad's warning? Well, we're told in verse 25, they, they refused to listen to him. And then we see this line, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. It was the will of the Lord to put them to death. And that's a hard verse, y'all. It is. So what does it mean? I'll give you two points. Um, it means that when God has decreed for something to happen, it will happen. When God has determined that something will happen, uh, it's going to happen. He had determined. He had willed. It was his decree to put these two to death. But the text also lets us know that Hophni and Phinehas sealed their own fate. Look at verse 25 again. They refused to listen to their dad. So what you see in this passage, um, they were responsible. They chose not to listen, and God was sovereign. He chose to put them to death. They freely chose to reject God, and God freely chose to reject them. And when God determines that something will happen, it will happen. Uh, but the second thing we could say about this is that phrase uh, it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. It could be translated uh, this way. The Lord was pleased to put them to death. The Lord was pleased to put them to death. And honestly, it really wouldn't make much of a difference because God decrees to do as he pleases to do. But for some reason, on this side of eternity, it might be a little easier for us to swallow. It pleased the Lord to put them to death. Oh, there's my microphone. Hello. Sorry about that, y'all. Um, Saying that it pleased the Lord to put him to death. Oh, it's falling now. I'll get this. We're having technical difficulties. Um, saying that it pleased the Lord to put them to death, that doesn't mean that God enjoyed it. He got pleasure from killing them. Uh, the book of Ezekiel, he says explicitly the opposite. Uh, he says, I do not delight in the destruction of the wicked. I would rather you repent so that I can forgive you and you can find mercy and comfort. Um, what it means is that it pleased God to bring order and justice amidst chaos and evil. It was pleasing to God. It was right. It was determined. It was his will to bring order and justice in the midst of chaos and evil. And uh, while that might sound harsh or mean uh, to the rich and comfortable, uh, I've said this before, it sounds like justice for the abused, uh, for the oppressed, for those who are getting physically assaulted by the priests for trying to respond to the word of God rightly for the women who were going to serve God and found themselves sexually assaulted by the priests repeatedly, uh, for those who are tormented by all sorts of suffering, God's justice is always good news for them. Um, it's proof that he sees, that he cares, that he's good, that he will right wrongs, that he will not allow this world to spiral and get flushed down the toilet of sin. And so uh, just a word, a lesson I've learned the hard way. Don't shudder at phrases in the Bible that are meant to give us comfort. That verse is meant to give us comfort that God sees and he will do something about it. And it pleased God to bring justice and put the likes of Hophni and Phinehas to death. And if it will help you to think about it this way, uh, when did this conversation go down? Uh, when Eli was a very old man, which means in mercy, God patiently, patiently for years and years gave them time and opportunity and warnings to repent. And they didn't. So here's the question, to allow them to continue in this evil, like Eli was willing to do, that is actually unjust and unloving, right? To allow them to continually abuse and take advantage and mock the temple and ruin people's faith, would that be loving to let them do? No, that would be unloving and unjust. God would do something about it. We'll keep moving. Verses 27 through 29. 
One of the reasons I love reading the Bible is because uh, when we read the Bible, sometimes the veil is removed, and we get to see things from God's point of view, and that's what we see in verses 27 through 29. Here, Eli, just like the people in Nehemiah 8, um, he has his narrative, his view of things, his perspective of this whole situation destroyed by the cross-examination of God's word. The 10,000-watt spotlight of God's truth was about to be shined in his eyes. Uh, God sends an unnamed prophet to deliver him a message. And the prophet's unnamed because, like I told you, ministers, we're just the stagehands. You really shouldn't even see us if we're doing our job right. The star of this show is God's word, and uh, this is what God tells Eli through his prophets. Verses 27 through 28, God asks Eli some rhetorical questions. And these questions are meant to highlight the fact that God has been merciful and gracious to Eli and his family for decades, for centuries, and generations. So he asks him, didn't I reveal myself to Aaron? Moses' brother, the patriarch of your family, didn't I reveal myself to your family in a unique way? Didn't I choose him, Aaron, your family, out of everyone that I could have chosen? And I chose you to serve me, to represent me, to be the physical manifestation of the invisible God to my people. Didn't I show your line, your family, grace and mercy and blessings by giving you this honor and providing for you and holding you up and blessing you didn't I? Then why? Why would you allow this nonsense to go on, Eli? And by mentioning his lineage and his history and his family, God was actually communicating a lot because Eli comes from a long, long, long line of priests. And like his father and his father before him and his father before him and his father before him, Eli's primary job was to hear, to understand, and to respond to the word of God rightly. That was his primary job. And by bringing up Eli's lineage, uh, God was showing him that if he really understood the word, he would have already known exactly how God would respond to this cluster mess with his sons. If, he really, if Eli really understood the word, he would have known what was happening and what God was going to do about it. Because in Leviticus 10, Aaron, Israel's first priest, the patriarch of Eli's family, Aaron also had two sons who served as priests. And uh, when they were crooked, in their service to the Lord, do you know what God did to them? He sent fire from heaven to burn them alive. On the spot, they were burned up. And not only did God put them to death, he told Aaron, you're not allowed to mourn their deaths because they were criminals of the highest sort. They deserved God's judgment, and Aaron knew it. And because of his failure as a father, because of his failure as a priest, God never allowed Aaron, Israel's first priest, the patriarch of all the priests, Aaron wasn't allowed to enter into the promised land. Uh, point being, genealogy, you're, you're from that family, precedent, you've been doing it for a long time, platform, gifting, whatever else, are not what qualifies someone to be a minister of God. The qualification is faithfulness and God's forgiveness. Um, and if anyone should have understood that, it's Eli. Right? Paul's instruction that an elder pastor must manage his household well that's not a new qualification. It's always been the case. And Paul says, for someone does not know how to manage his own household, how can he care for the church of God? You can't do it at home? You think you can do it here? And that's what basically God asked Eli in verse 29. If you know all this, then why? Why do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I committed for my dwelling? And I don't often point out fine-tooth grammar unless it's relevant to understanding this text. So uh, I think it is here. Two points on grammar really, really quickly. The pronoun you and why do you scorn is plural. In, in the South, we would say y'all 
Why do y'all scorn my sacrifices? Being God is lumping Eli in with his sons. Why do y'all scorn my sacrifices? Um, now, whether that's because Eli, as the elder priest, as their father, should have stopped them, or because maybe Eli was getting fat, too, on the abuse of the offering. Um, we're not told, though, weirdly, in chapter 4, it mentions that Eli is fat, so there might be something to that. But either way, we're not told. The point is that God implicated and indicted Eli for the sin as much as he did his sons. And the second thing on grammar is uh, the form of the verb scorn. It indicates uh, habitual action. This wasn't a one-time whoopsie. This was a way of life for them. This is how they had been going for a long, long time. And the word scorn means to kick at something. Uh, like you might kick at a cat because it's annoying and it's in front of you and it's a lesser animal. It was a joke. Uh, don't kick cats. Don't call PETA. But, but by scorning God's offering, by scorning the offering, the means by which God gave them grace and forgiveness, um, Eli kicked at the grace of God like it was nothing, like it was beneath him. And by dishonoring the offering, Eli dishonored God. And then something interesting happened. It, God asks a second question, and in the second question, he explains to Eli, actually, there's an explanation, uh, what he's doing. He explains to him uh, what caused him to turn a blind eye to this, but then asks him why he's turning a blind eye to it. Um, and I'll explain that here quickly. God asks Eli, if you know my word, and you know how I've dealt with priests and their crooked children in the past, you know your family's lineage, and you know my word and the significance of the offering, then why? Why did you honor your sons above me? Is the question God asks him. Eli's sons committed a great sin, and uh, God would put them to death for it. But God's not charging Eli for the sins they committed, for their misconduct. He's uh, condemning Eli for his own sin, and it's this. Eli honored his sons above God. And uh, one commentator points out what should be obvious to us. He violated the first commandment. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. That's what we titled this second point. And uh, I like the way Augustine summarizes that. Christ is not valued at all unless he's valued above all. And Eli, he loved, he honored, and in a sense worshipped something, someone else before and above God. He may not have thought it, he may not have realized it clearly, um, but his actions spoke louder than words. And at the end of Hannah's song, God, in his knowledge, weighs out our actions. And uh, this is heavy. I get it. And maybe that feels harsh to you. Uh, maybe you're thinking, and I was, surely Eli could have done more. I get that. He probably could have done more, but he did confront his sons. And they're adults, and they chose not to listen to him. I mean, what could he do about it? If that's what you're thinking, I have an illustration for you that might maybe shed some light on the severity of this situation if you're ready for it, okay? So say there's a cop who loves the law. He loves the law, and he wants to ensure that it's followed and enforced and adhered to. And this cop is a really good man. He's just, he's fair, he's patient, he helps the old lady get her cat out of the tree. Uh, when he sees the situation, he doesn't jump to conclusions. He tries to de-escalate wherever possible. Say this cop is everything that you hope and wish a cop would be, okay? On top of that, all those other things, he has an adult son. That's the situation, you got it in your mind? Okay. Now imagine this cop is stationed on Highway 2 by the speed limit sign. I think it's 60 on Highway 2, I should know. Ooh. 
he's stationed there every day. And uh, every day he sees his adult son blow past him 20 miles per hour over the speed limit. First few times, he gives his son some leniency, right? I mean, he must be in a rush. That'd be all right. But the next few times, uh, the cop starts to wonder, maybe his son doesn't know the speed limit there. So he pulls him over. He tells him, hey, speed limit's 60, bud. And his son kind of half apologizes. Oh, Dad, I didn't know. I didn't see the sign. And thanks, Daddy. I love you. It won't happen again. <laughs> and the cop walks back to his car. He's feeling good. He's thinking, you know, he's a good kid. You know what else? I'm a good dad and a good cop. Just pulled my son over, told him the truth. And yeah, we got it together. Fortunately, the very next day, the son blows by 20 miles per hour. Father pulls him over again. Tells him what you're doing is wrong. And uh, if you don't stop it, you're going to get in big trouble. And the son, oh, yeah, no, I agree. Yeah, yeah it's totally, t- sorry, not going to happen again. And he continues to do it the next day and the day after that. And eventually, uh, the cop dad just shrugs and says, uh, well, I tried. I tried. I told him. But what am I going to do, arrest my own son? Bob's son's a drug addict. He never arrested him. And drugs are worse than speeding. Kids, am I right? What are you going to do? Then one day, this cop sees his son blowing past him, 20 miles per hour over the speed limit, like usual, but this time he sees him try to swerve to avoid debris in the road. And when he does, he smashes head on into another car, taking both drivers' lives. Okay? My question for you is this, who is responsible? Who is responsible for this tragedy? You see my point, right? Um, The cop honored his son more than he did the law. What the son did was bad, and he experienced the consequences of his actions. But in reality, maybe what the father did was worse. Uh, In the same way, Eli was more committed to loving and serving his sons than he was to loving and serving the Lord. And yes, after years of silence, when everything was public and everyone in Israel knew what they were up to, he did finally address them and say something, but ultimately he did nothing. In the end, he did nothing. And whether you're a pastor, whether you're a parent, whether you're a teacher, whether you're a business owner, whatever you are, uh, the point is the same. Here's a quote for you. Um, What you permit is what you promote. What you allow, you encourage. What you condone, you own. And what you tolerate, you deserve. You see that? And this is equally true for all of us. But the warning here in this scene with Eli is especially true for parents. And I'll explain why. We could just say Eli was a bad priest. He failed in his priestly duties. He failed to protect the holiness of God's worship. He did. That would be a true statement. But why did he fail in his priestly duties? It's because of his love for his sons. God says it's because Eli honored his sons above God. Point being, Eli was a bad father first. And because he was a bad father, he eventually became a bad priest. Um, The word of God says to all of us, the first commitment, you shall have no other gods before me. And uh, yes, we should love our spouse, uh, our kids, our parents, our siblings, our friends, and our church. We should. It's a good and beautiful thing to love them. Um, But the order of our love is crucial. It's the first commandment is how crucial it is. And uh, loving God in word and deed above, before anyone else, is uh, dangerous. I'm sorry. No, I said that wrong. Loving God above anyone else is actually how we love them best. Uh, Because living into God's way is best. And 
Love God and neighbor, but God comes first and Eli reversed the order is what happened. And Eli learned this lesson the hard way. We'll see that in our next installment. He learned this lesson too late, but it's not too late for us. Uh, and so I read a quote and it was so good and it's addressed to parents, but you can apply it to so many things. And so parents in this room, uh, this line did something to me. Parents, we're going to make a lot of mistakes. Don't let passivity be one of them. Don't someday look back and say, I just sat by as it happened. If you don't know what to do, that's the beauty of the body of Christ. Call someone. If you strike out, strike out swinging and fail forward into God's grace. I like that. Um, Eli the father struck out hard, and while that's bad, what made it worse is that Eli the father was also Eli the priest. By striking out at home, he struck out even harder amongst the people of God in the house of God. Uh, and while I hate to stop here on this dour note, I really do. I kind of feel like we need to. We need to. Uh, we'll get to the good news of this passage in our next installment, but I don't want us to be either Eli's sons who hear the warning and just quickly move past it, or Eli himself who gives the warning and doesn't listen to it. Um, what we permit is what we promote. What we allow is what we encourage. What we condone is what we own. What we tolerate is what we deserve. And if we're going to be a Nehemiah 8 kind of church, if we're going to be a people who hear and understand and respond to the word rightly, we need to see our sin for what it is and repent. Um, we shall have no other gods before him, and Christ is not valued at all unless he's valued above all. So I want to end this message by asking us to reflect on something. <clears throat> and this is it. We're ending here. But I want us to reflect whether you're an elder, uh, whether you're uh, a member, a husband, a wife, a parent, a neighbor, a sibling, or just a Christian, an individual, individual Christian, I want us to honestly ask ourselves these questions. What am I permitting to grow in the darkness? What am I permitting to grow in the darkness? What am I allowing or condoning? What am I tolerating to go on in the church, in my house, and in my heart, even though I sense and hear the Holy Spirit's conviction? What am I allowing? What am I tolerating? Even though I sense the Holy Spirit's conviction. Uh, Eli didn't do that. He didn't reflect. He was content to let it go until it was too late. So let's not do that. Let's ask the Holy Spirit to shine his bright light in the darkness of our hearts. And when and if and whatever we see there, don't close our eyes to it. Uh, let's press forward and repent before it's too late. But remember uh, last week, sin is the wound. Repentance is the medicine. Our, our flesh says, don't repent, don't see it, don't acknowledge it, don't turn away. There's no joy for you. That's hard, it's painful. That is a lie from the devil. It is where life and joy and peace and found. God loves to give mercy and comfort and joy to those who would repent. Um, our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Um, so let's be slow to sin and quick to repent. And uh, then let's flourish in joy together as a church. Um, Anyways, that's it. Super heavy, I know. Let's pray, and then we'll sing a song about God's mercy, because I, I need it.